A recent study is shining new light, or purportedly intends to do so, on just how fragile the U.S. financial system really is. As Silicon Valley Bank fell apart almost overnight, the ensuing panic threatened to engulf wide swaths of the economy. The new research conducted by economists commissioned by the New York Times suggests that regional banks that massive sections of the country depend on were, in fact, on the verge of collapse in those crucial days. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. We can do this show with you, but not without you. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you again, Professor Wolf. I I want to ask you, there's the element of sort of what's in this report that shows that the government had to intervene. It had to intervene when it did. The Federal Reserve had to bail out the banks or take them over and then bail out all of the depositors, no matter how large their deposit was, even those deposits that were greater and in many cases far greater than $250,000. That was what the FDIC says it covers as an insurance. But according to Silicon Valley Bank, I think more than 94% of their deposits were over the $250,000 level. But I want to also talk about the politics of this report. Like, why did the New York Times commission it? Because obviously, there's a political battle going on in Congress. It's not much of a battle, but there's something of a battle because some of the members of Congress, and mostly a small number of Republicans, are making the argument that the government, the Biden administration, the Federal Reserve intervened to bail out the banks, and they're doing it at the expense of the people. Normally, that would sound like a left-wing argument. In this case, it's coming from the right wing. But I want to read a little bit to you from the New York Times article, which summarizes the report. Here it is. How Silicon Valley Bank's failure could have spread far and wide. New research suggests large parts of the country remain vulnerable to widespread bank failure in the event of a run on deposits. The federal government's rescue of two failed banks last month has drawn criticism from some lawmakers and investors 
who accused the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve of bailing out wealthy customers in California and New York and sticking bank customers in middle America with the bill. But new data help explain why government officials declared the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank to be a risk to not just their customers, but to the entire financial system. The numbers suggest that a run on deposits at those two banks could have set off a cascading series of bank failures, crippling small businesses and economic activity across wide parts of the country. So, Professor Wolf, there's a number of pieces to this story. Why did the Times commission the report? Why is the right wing attacking the Federal Reserve? Is the substance of the report accurate? Are we really living, as the report suggests, right at the edge of the precipice of a major, multiple cascading bank failure such that the entire or big parts of the economy and big parts of people's life savings and jobs and small businesses would get wiped out? It's a little bit hard to know without a bigger or deeper dive here on this. Again, the article says, the sort of credit paralysis, if the government had not acted, according to the report, could have afflicted nearly half of the counties in Missouri, Tennessee, and Mississippi, and every county in Vermont, Maine, and Hawaii. Professor Wolf, there's a lot to talk about here. Yes. Well, let's start with the report, the decision of the New York Times, if indeed that's what it was, to have it produced. This is covering your rear end. In other words, this is the uh, financial authorities of the United States, together with the media, number one media outlet for the country, the New York Times, to make the case as best they can that what they did was the right thing to do and that everybody who's critical should shut up because they saved us all and those six states in particular from a catastrophe. Now, this should be understood for what it primarily is, not an analysis of what's going on, but a paper written to make the government look like it did the right thing. Whether the government did that or not is a different matter and would require a dispassionate, disinterested, honest investigation, which that report isn't, number one. Number two, anything having to do with banks in the United States is extremely loaded material. And that's because of the way capitalism organizes its own monetary system. Here's what I mean. Money makes the world go round. Everyone knows it. We all depend on the money we get paid as income, the money we spend in the store, the money we give our children, the money, the money, the money. And every business depends on the flows of money. Every family depends, or almost everyone, on money. So if ever there was something that deserved the adjective social, it's a social reality, a social mechanism, literally a social object, right up there with the air we breathe and the water we consume. So we got a problem in capitalism because we have something socially important to all of us and to the smooth functioning of our communities, our society, 
but we have done a very peculiar thing. We've put it in the hands of institutions, we call them banks, whose job it is not to be custodians for something society needs and to manage it in the interests of society. No, no, no. They're in the business of making a private profit for their shareholders and their top executives. That's what they do, that's what they're paid to do, and that's what every bank, large and small and medium, does. If it strikes you as nutty to have something socially crucial in the hands of people who do not manage it for society, but rather tell you, honestly, we manage it to maximize our profit. If that troubles you, well, good, you've been paying attention. Third problem. All of these are involved here. Third problem. Our banking system is a little peculiar in the world of capitalism. In most other countries, a few huge banks dominate. We don't have that. We have a few huge banks that are the monsters that in a way prevail. But we allow in our system a vast number, by comparison with other countries, of what we can call here small and medium or community banks, things like that. And there's always a struggle between the big ones, you know, Citibank, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, those names, and the many, many little ones. I'm sure most folks didn't hear much about the Silicon Valley Bank or the Signature Bank. Those are in between. They're not as big as the monsters, but they're much bigger than the, your neighborhood community bank. That's why they were scary when they both collapsed in the same few days period. So be aware that whatever you read or hear about this is about the problem of our private banking system, the problem of the competition and struggle between large and big banks. And now let's go back to the government. Why does it need an article in the New York Times saying that what they did was right? Because a whole lot of people, not just Republican conservatives, although it is shameful that it is only them who bring this up, a lot of people are asking, was this a bank bailout? To which the basic answer is, you bet it was. The number I have seen is $22 billion, probably more than that. Money pumped up by the Federal Reserve, which promised to make good to any bank that was unable to return depositors' money to the depositor, could go to the Federal Reserve and get a subsidized low-interest loan so they could pay off their depositors without declaring the bankruptcy that would otherwise have been required. Did that stave off a catastrophe? Probably, because everybody else would have been terrified if the banks had not only been unable to function, which is what happened, but also had to declare formal bankruptcy. This would have been very, very bad. But the real purpose of the report is to show that what we did was good in hopes of distracting people from the fact that once again, our taxpayer money is going into the government and directly or indirectly enabling the government to save the private profiteers, 
who run the banks. If not the existing owners of the bank, the new owners who will take over, as a bank in the American South did, take over part of the Silicon Valley Bank. Why? Because the government made it worth their while by giving them that bank at the cheap, with the money in between making that possible, being, you guessed it, once again, the Federal Reserve. And so that they don't want the question to be raised, why are we, the government, bailing out banks who fail because they don't understand that you have to be careful with your depositors' money because they can get it back from you on a dime and you better be able to have the money available to give it to them. That's the first day of learning what banking is about. They didn't do it in the Silicon Valley Bank or the Signature Bank. They didn't do it in the Swiss Credit Suisse in Switzerland. And by the way, that's not just a failure of the banks. In the case of the Silicon Valley, that's under the aegis of what's called the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. They're supposed to monitor the private banks in their area, and that included the Silicon Valley Bank. They're supposed to see anything that suggests the bank could be having trouble and to go in there and fix it before it becomes a catastrophe. They failed also. And so we're covering all of that up. Where are the investigations that ought to be in the glare of publicity? What happened to the supervision that failed? What happened to the private banker that failed? And of course, if you did that, it would raise the question in the United States, why do we have a private banking system? And then I would remind everyone, that there is one state out of 50 in the United States that long ago, about a, about a century ago, decided it didn't want to put the well-being of the money needs of the people of North Dakota, because that's the state I'm talking about. They didn't want to put that in private banks. So they set up the Bank of North Dakota. It's a public bank. It's owned and operated by the state of North Dakota. It takes in the money that the state earns in taxes and fees and license plates and everything else. It makes loans to farmers and workers and small businesses in North Dakota. Any profits the banks earn go back into the general fund of the state of North Dakota. They have a public banking system and they don't crash their banks and they don't need to dip into the Federal Reserve. They put out a statement recently reassuring people in North Dakota, because we have a public bank, we don't have the problems of the Silicon Valley. Now, the big banks have tried to get rid of the public bank of North Dakota. They've tried for the full hundred years of its existence. But both Republican and Democratic majorities in North Dakota have refused to go private, even under the blandishments and the threats of the big banks. And North Dakota is a conservative state, as states go in this country. But the farmers, the workers, the small businesses, they know they have a good thing in a reliable 
public management of their banking and monetary needs. And if that were better known, then you would have a conversation now, as you should have had back in 2008 and 9, about whether we our problem isn't this or that detail of funding, but whether we have the, the luxury of threatening our own well-being as a community by allowing private profiteers to run the monetary system. Richard, I was looking at some numbers earlier today about bankruptcies in the United States, and I'm talking about personal bankruptcies. In 2021, the number went down from where it was in 2020, but it was still, you know, it's in the range of a little less than a half a million people who have actually declared bankruptcy. The leading state is Alabama, then Missouri, then Nevada, then Tennessee, Indiana, Mississippi, Kentucky, Georgia, Arkansas. Half of those bankruptcies are because people couldn't pay health care. They couldn't pay their medical bills. They had an unexpected health care crisis. They didn't have coverage. And, you know, even if you do have coverage in, in the United States, I mean, I just had dental work done. It wasn't covered by my insurance. And it's like astronomical in terms of the amount. I mean, a significant chunk of my annual salary just went to pay one dental bill. And again, once you get older, Richard, Medicare doesn't cover hearing and dental and vision because our, you know, our eyes and ears and teeth get so much better when we're older. <laughs> but, you know, personal bankruptcy, there's nobody bailing people out when they can't pay their doctor's bills. I just wonder, I mean, when Silicon Valley Bank gets bailed out, when Signature Bank gets bailed out, when the other banks get bailed out or consolidated, the people who were the bank owners who took our money and invested it in a way that ended up with them or their bank going bankrupt, and then the bank gets bailed out, those people remain very, very, very rich. And I think it really speaks to one of the points that you're making. We are sort of assuming, people in the United States are assuming, because this is what people do in any social system. They assume that the system they live in is the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it is. Maybe it's the way it's always been. And don't realize that it doesn't have to be this way, that these are a consequence of systems and policies and decisions by human beings. And there can be other systems and other decisions and other policies by human beings that meet people's needs better than the current system. And it would seem to me that it would be like such an important point of political mobilizing if somebody was genuinely progressive and running for office to say, let's just get rid of private banking, like 100%. Like the masses of people, working class people, middle class people, poor people, you're looking for a bank not because you're hoping the bank makes good profits. You just want to put your money somewhere. You're hoping maybe to get a little interest, even though for like 10 years, there was almost no interest payments, you know, but it would seem to me that that would be a very, very popular demand to end the private capitalist banking system. Now, people might say, well, you need a revolution to have that. Well, perhaps in America, you might need a, a revolution just to have the kind of healthcare system that all of Europe has. I mean, it might take a revolution, but it's not because it really requires a revolution. It's because the existing powers that be, the ruling class, so to speak, 
is so greedy and so insistent that their needs come first above all else, and they don't feel threatened enough by mass movements in the United States, that this is why we have the current status quo. But it doesn't have to be this way. Yes, it doesn't have to be that way. There's not only the the example of the Bank of North Dakota that I just spoke about. People should be aware that in many European countries, there are public banks of various kinds. In many countries, the post office doubles as a public bank so that when you go to the post office to mail a package or to buy stamps or whatever else brings you there, you can also do your banking. You can get a checking account, a savings account, a credit card, and so on. And that forces the private banks to not be as greedy and as grubby as they normally are in this country because they always have to have one eye on that public bank, which provides them with some real competition. Only in the United States do we praise competition and then deny the government the possibility of providing some competition, for example, in the, in the monetary sector. Then there are credit unions in this country where people have gotten together so that they're not victims of the private profiteering bank, but are actually working with a bank whose job it is to provide a service to their members and to return any profits they make to their members, et cetera, et cetera, as an attempt to get around this system of private banking. Look, the private bank is a leftover of an earlier phase of capitalism. We only keep it because the private banks make a lot of money and they use it to make sure that the politicians are in their pocket. And that's why you saw the report with which this program began, because those banks make sure those politicians don't vote against private banking, just like they make sure that Newspapers like the New York Times carry stories that tell you that what the government did to bail out those banks was the right thing and that little banks should be grateful because otherwise they might be angry. They are going to pay the bill because this disaster is partly going to come out of the FDIC and the FDIC gets its money by putting a tax on every bank and every bank account. And that means little banks will be facing higher FDIC fees in part to compensate for what had to be done for those bigger banks in California and New York that faded. Never forget that anything that happens in banks is also going to be woven into and shaped by the struggle between little community banks on the one hand and the monster banks that reported all those stunning profits in the recent period to their shareholders last week. Richard, I was on um, an international television show the other day. We were talking about social issues in the United States and the issue of the bailout of these banks of Silicon Valley Bank came up. And I turned out I, I wasn't expecting it, but I got in a fight with the host. I won't say which international network it was, but he was obviously very into the bailout and very into Silicon Valley Bank because I was making the point that the bankers act with impunity. If you're too big to fail, you can commit any crime and you know the government's going to be right there to bail you out because lots of crimes were committed in 2008 and 2009 
unlike the savings and loan crisis in in the late 1980s, when there were 10,000 criminal referrals from the Department of Justice, in 2008 and 9, there was like a couple or maybe none. There was the Bernie Magdoff story and, you know, his Ponzi scheme. So he became like the guy, the scapegoat. But I was making the point that, you know, these guys act with impunity. They're very rich. They take all sorts of risks. They make investments. The bottom line is if they fail, the government's there for them. It's their government. The government functions really as a as an agency for them, a, sort of a service for them. And the host pushed back and said, well, wait a second, wait a second. They have to bail them out. And you're demonizing these banks without these venture capital banks like Silicon Valley Bank. Where are the new investments going to come from? Where are we going to like have innovation? Where is the new you know, <laughs> next thing in technology going to come from without these banks? As if the banks were actually fundamental to it. And I said, well, what makes this venture capital when there's no venture? I mean, when it's completely backed out, it's backstopped by the there's no risk there. And then he made this point, and I'm, I'm going to wrap the show up today with this question because I'm hearing this more and more. He said the real problem, the real problem that Silicon Valley Bank faced was that today because people have apps, bank apps on their phone, people can withdraw money very, very rapidly. And overnight in 24 hours, like $64 billion or some huge number was withdrawn once there was a real run on the bank. People didn't have to go to the bank like in 1933 and stand in line to get their money out. They could just press a couple buttons on their phone and withdraw their money. So he said the real problem is the new technology. And it seems to me that that does intensify the ability to have a run on a bank. So it's not nothing. But I want to get your take because he's making the argument that it really is just sort of a new technical issue and that once we sort of sort this problem out with the app and the new technologies for how people withdraw money, these kind of problems will be mediated. With all due respect to whoever that was, that is nonsense. Yeah, the bad thing happened quicker because we have an app and we can move the money with our smartphone. It did happen quicker, but we have a 200 years of American history full every few years of what used to be called in the 19th and early 20th century, a quote unquote bank panic. And the word panic was an honest rendition of what happened. Whether the people stand online for 15 days and photograph for the newspaper standing there day after day and in the middle of the night, which will freak everybody out, or whether you hear it on the radio that it all took place in three hours, it doesn't make a major difference here. Everything is happening faster because we all use electronic means rather than the old-fashioned way of moving around. Much more relevant and much more often heard was that earlier argument you got from that person, namely this head-scratching question, gee, if these banks are not lending money to venture capitalists, well, we won't get the breakthroughs that venture capitalists get. This is... Uh, this is so weird on remark that it always takes me aback. But let me give you the obvious answer. We need people to take risks, no question. We need people to make inventions, no question. We don't need private bankers to fund it. 
You could submit, and this happens in many academic fields, for example, you could submit your proposal to a panel, a panel composed of your peers, composed of a governmental financial authority, and they could choose among those venture capitalists who they thought were doing the kind of work most beneficial to society. What a private bank does is choose among those projects which have the best chance of paying back the loan. And if the bank takes a, a stock position, which many banks do, he'll give you a loan, but we want some of the shares as well or at a special price, then the bank is making a decision of which venture capitalist to support based again on its own private profit calculations. That's not necessarily what society needs or wants. So it's not a particularly good way, but getting money available for people who want to take risks, any government in the world can do that. You don't need private bankers to do that. A public bank could do it. A public investment authority could do it. Public investment authorities around the world and in the United States are doing it as I speak. So the notion that you have to have a private bank to get something done is silly. It's like the notion in order to run a society, you need a king. Well, it turns out we got rid of kings. Societies didn't fall apart. We can get rid of private banks, and there's dozens of other ways to fund risk-taking, innovation, invention, or any of the other things venture capitalists do. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System. When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.